you would uh, open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, please. We're going to start at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the song selection there, Paul. I, I told Paul if he had any, asked Paul if he had any songs about meaninglessness, since we're going to be in Ecclesiastes. He says, oh yeah, I got some for that, so thanks. <laughs> oh man. Uh, especially that last song is going to fit exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to spend our, most of our time in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, but I want to kind of give you some background about what, what Ecclesiastes is about. Um, I also wanted to give you a little taste of what we talked about for our winter retreat this past uh, winter. <laughs> a few weeks ago, the teens had a winter retreat, and uh, we walked through a lot of Ecclesiastes, not the whole thing, but a lot of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it was really a fun time. So Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, um, if you find Psalms and then go to the right a couple of books, there you have it, Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, chapter 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so stop there. The narrator introduces you to a guy by the name of Ecclesiastes, okay, translation, the preacher the teacher, the assembler, the one who assembles, the one uh, for whom people are assembling. Ecclesiastes, that's the name of the book. Kohelet is the Hebrew word there. Uh, the, the preacher teacher takes on a Solomonic persona. So he, he acts like Solomon. He writes as if he's Solomon. It, it could have been Solomon writing this book. Some people will take that. I'd be, I'm fine with that, actually, but... Personally, I don't think it was Solomon that wrote, wrote it, but I think he at least takes on a Solomonic persona, writes as if he's Solomon here. And we see that here. And the narrator is seen, this is a little side note on how to read Ecclesiastes. Their narrator is seen from chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Okay, he's the narrator. They call, sometimes they call him the frame narrator because he shows up at the end again in chapter 12. In the last paragraph, of, last couple of paragraphs of chapter 12, verses 9 and following, uh, he shows up again, their narrator. And then look at verse 12 in chapter 1. I, the preacher, so now Ecclesiastes, the man, the preacher, is talking. And he talks and gives words of wisdom and advice throughout Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature, and um, uh, throughout this book. Well, you have this frame narrator that introduces him. And he introduces the preacher in this way. And then he says this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do you think the point of the book is? Give you a hint. You just heard it five times. <laughs> now that word vanity, maybe in our modern English, has kind of lost a little bit of its meaning uh, from the original here. Uh, vanity, sometimes we might think of something in our bathroom. We have a vanity in our bathroom. Uh, we might think uh, vain as this is all about me, that kind of thing. But maybe a better translation as we think about this would be meaninglessness, everything is meaninglessness, or I think a couple of translations, a couple of your translations might have the term futile. That's a good translation as well. I like the term absurd. As he goes through life, he sees things that are absurd. So, this is what he says, meaninglessness Meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. I'm not going to say that anymore. Says the preacher. And then, after that, in verse 3, 
He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? His goal is to see what man gains under the sun. And his conclusion is that it's all meaningless. Look at verse 14. You'll see a conclusion here as he gets into it. He pursues um, wisdom. He pursues meaning in life through wisdom. In verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So that, um, you'll see that refrain a lot. You'll see these three phrases a lot. You'll see uh, under the sun a lot. You'll see the term vanity a lot. And throughout this book, you'll see this phrase, it's like striving after the wind, which is a really funny phrase to me. Ecclesiastes is trying to find meaning in things under the sun. And I think that phrase, under the sun, is actually a really important phrase in this book. It's used 29 times in the Old Testament, and it's used 29 times in Ecclesiastes. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in Ecclesiastes. I think it's a really important phrase. And I think it refers to earthly things. So, under the sun things. Can you see that picture? Under the sun things, as opposed to over the sun things, heavenly things, if you will. Earthly things in contrast to heavenly things. In contrast to set your minds on things that are above. Remember that from Colossians chapter 3? Under the sun versus over the sun kind of living in this wisdom literature. He tries to find meaning under the sun and he says it's like grasping after the wind. So picture that in your mind. Okay? Imagine somebody like Pastor Brent out in this field over here trying to grasp the wind. <laughs> Just picture it for a little bit. I think it's a fantastic picture. <laughs> but it's just silly. It's absurd. It's nonsense. Why would he do that? I've only seen it a couple of times. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like grasping after the wind. You can't grab onto it. So he goes after wisdom. No satisfaction. Chapter 1, you see that? He goes after wisdom. No satisfaction, he finds. He goes after wealth. He goes stuff, women, toys, gardens, things like that. Look with me in chapter 2. I'll give you a little bit of an example of this. And you're going to see why uh, he takes on this Solomonic, Solomonic persona here. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my, I'm going to read this really fast, so buckle up. Okay. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom, of course, in how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Maybe trying to recreate Eden. Keep going. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. 
there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing. There's no satisfaction there. So I heard one preacher say, uh, Solomon had wealth upon wealth upon wealth. We think of somebody who's wealthy that can walk into a car dealership and say, give me that car and give me that car. Solomon could walk in and say, give me the dealership. I mean, he just had it all. And he's been down this road to see if these things listed here would, would give satisfaction. And naturally, to left to ourselves, we're thinking, man, if I had money, if I was the greatest in this, if I had all, everything that, that I wanted and people to do the stuff that I didn't want to do for me, that I would be set. I would be satisfied. And what is this conclusion? It's like grasping after the wind. You can't get a hold of it. You're waiting for it to sink in, and it just doesn't sink in. So, he goes after wisdom, there's no satisfaction. He goes after wealth, there's no satisfaction. He goes after madness and folly, the simple life, if you will. There's no satisfaction there in chapter 2. He also goes after work itself, and he says no satisfaction. And there's, he goes through the text here, and he's, he sees that all is meaningless. And since all is meaningless, there's a few application points. Since all is vanity, since all is meaningless, and grasping after the wind, look at chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in, in his work, for this is his lot. Okay. You see a few of those throughout. He makes these application points to his conclusion that everything is meaningless. He says things like, enjoy the little things that are gifts from God, like eating and drinking and work itself. Choose to enjoy your work. Enjoy these things. They're gifts from God. So with that background in mind, let's flip through to chapter 2. Okay, turn a few pages to your right and go, oh, what did I say, chapter 11? Did I say chapter 11? I didn't say chapter 11. What I meant was chapter 11. Turn to chapter 11. And chapter 11 has two really big points of encouragement for you tonight. Point number one, you don't know anything. Point number two, so rejoice. You don't know anything, so rejoice. Do you ever wonder what the future holds for you? Do you ever worry about something that is upcoming, that is pending? Maybe you're worried about adequately being prepared for retirement. Maybe you're nervous about a particular job change or a job loss or job issues, a job project. Maybe you worry about a school change or a big move. I think in, in this, maybe in this area especially, people move all the time, it seems like. Um, with the military being right here. You ever worry about that thing? Well, let chapter 11 be an encouragement to you tonight. So point number one, you don't know anything. Look at chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, 
for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. You're going to see that three times here. You're going to see that phrase, you know not. You do not know. That's why the point is you don't know nothing or don't know anything, something like that. You don't know. So the first point here is you don't know what evil will be on the earth. That's the first of the things that we don't know. We don't know what evil will be upon the earth. Just like in verse 3, Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If, the tree, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. We don't know how that, all that works. Right? We don't know when it will rain or when a tree will fall. For example, we were at Mrs. Tom and Endall's house uh, last weekend because a tree fell. And you look, and when there was lots of wind, you know, and you look at the outside of the tree and you think, that's a pretty, that's a pretty great tree. That's a nice, big tree. Of course, on the inside, it was terrible. It was like rotted out, especially at the base there. But looking at the outside, we would have no idea there's a problem with that tree. I mean, just, just you know, you know the, um, the accuracy of our weathermen. You know, that's just a running joke, you know. And uh, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen on the earth. So since you don't know what will be, up, be on the earth, what evil will be on the earth, he says, his point is in verses 1 and 2, give to others. Verse 1, I believe, is saying, give to others now. Read that again. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. So he's saying, give to others now, and you might receive gifts back from them in the future. Maybe. Some relate it to giving it specifically to poor mariners because of the water reference. They say, um, uh, give this money, give things, give money to the poor mariners who would go out to sea and when they return you would hope for a return on your investment when it comes back after many days but this expression in verse one has to do with giving to the poor specifically maybe maybe towards mariners but definitely to the poor and you um, although you don't expect much if anything in return like soggy bread that's just what gets me in this passage it's like you cast water cast bread upon the water doesn't really go well for the bread and it, come, it returns, we don't really expect much in return, but you might actually end up with something. But the point is to be a giver. Give, give, give. Verse 2 is saying, give to others because you have no idea what kind of evil times that person might find themselves in. So some say, uh, one pastor quoted this, he said, some say that life is uncertain, so we should eat dessert first. You ever heard that before? We, we happened to run into a couple in our church at uh, Olive Garden one time. And uh, yeah, this was a, a long time ago. And uh, they, the husband ordered dessert first and crushed some dessert before he had his pasta or whatever. It wasn't like, it's a great idea. <laughs> but he says, one pastor, some say that it, life is uncertain, so we should eat dessert first. Ecclesiastes here says that because life is uncertain, we ought to give that dessert away. I think about the many times that I found myself discouraged about circumstances in life. And then someone would encourage me. Maybe with a kind word or a little note. Maybe with a meal or a small gift. Maybe with a large gift of a million dollars or just throwing it out there. Um, You have no idea. Here's the point. You have no idea what kind of evils people are going through. So give to them. Give to people. Sometimes 
We know what kind of evils people are going through. Do we stand ready to give? So as I was studying Ecclesiastes, it just so happened, if you will, that it was during a difficult week, a very difficult week for our church, where we um, lost a beloved member of our church. And um, same week, one of my former teens is hit by a drunk driver and is still in a coma. And it is, it's devastating. It's devastating. So we look for ways to give to these kinds of people that are going through difficult times. So don't, don't think of evil as just morally evil, but difficulties, tragedy. Do we have open hands with our stuff before we even know people are going through difficult times? Be generous with your money. Be gracious with your stuff. Actively look for ways to give. Because remember, you won't find satisfaction in your stuff anyways. So give it up. How do we give to others? Maybe with our time, our talent, our treasure. I heard one pastor say, look for ways to give to your neighbors. Help them. I have a neighbor who's outside a lot, and if I'm outside working on something, you can guarantee that he's coming over to lend a hand and or a tool. Just fantastic. Look for ways to give to your coworkers. Lend a hand. Even if it's out of your specific area of your job, give cards, gifts, food, randomly because you care about them. Husbands, look for ways to give to your wife. Does your wife know that you treasure her more than anyone else besides Jesus? Does your wife know that you love her more than you love your work? Does your wife know that you love her more than you love your toys, more than you love your kids? Teens, kids, look for ways to love your parents. How about that? You know your parents are real people? You ever thought of this? Or we, or teens, we constantly taking, expecting your favorite meal to fall down on the plate. But mom, I don't like that kind of food. Or are you a wait for your parents and you're just fine with that? Your parents have real struggles, offer to help. Look for ways to give to your parents. Number two, the second thing we don't know is we don't know the works of God. Look at verse four and five. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. We'll come back to that. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So just like you don't know what way the wind blows, verse 4, like the forecaster that promises 100% chance of snow. That's my favorite one. 100% chance of snow. We close school, no snow. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Only in Virginia. Okay. Um, or we, we also don't know how a baby's bones grow in a mother's womb. Since you don't know the works of God, who makes everything, stop acting like you're in charge. If you're waiting for your circumstances to be absolutely perfect before you do anything, you'll never do anything. One author says, excuses are plentiful, especially for things we don't want to do. We have excuses, plenty. Heard one pastor, a church planner say, people don't need good excuses to skip church. Any excuse will do. I was like, ouch. Okay. 
There's a lot of pride and fear in thinking, thinking this way, that everything has to be absolutely perfect before we do anything. I will create the perfect plan or make the perfect decision so that people won't see me fail. Well, we're corrupt. So any plan that we make will be susceptible to corruption. Your life will never be perfect. Maybe we say something like this. I can't make changes in my life because everything around me is going crazy. I'm blaming my circumstances. But it's just like the farmer in verse 4. He's waiting for the wind and the clouds to align just perfectly before he sows, before he would ever sow. It may never happen. He may have missed your chance to sow. Some of this may be considered laziness. So change now. He says, do, do right now. Do right now. You don't know the works of God, verse 5. Verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. This verse was a crucial verse that sustained Abby and me when a good friend of mine texted me this verse um, after a miscarriage. It was a hard time, but this verse stands as a reminder that God's absolutely in control. We don't know how it all works in the, in the womb of a mother, but his sovereignty over the baby in the womb of a mother is something that we can rest in and find strength. Though difficulty, though there's a time for weeping, there's a time for mourning, it's difficult. We can trust in the sovereignty of God. We don't know how he works, but he's at work. The third thing we don't know is in verse 6. In the morning you sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We don't know. So since we don't know what will prosper, he's saying, work hard, don't be lazy. Sow your seed in the morning, but don't be lazy in the evening. So how have we been doing with this? How have we been doing? Have we been lazy at work? Maybe wasting our time at work? Looking for ways, are we looking for ways to improve our work? We're working hard. What about when you go home? Do you work hard at home in the evening? Do you work hard at being a good dad, husband, wife, mother? Work hard at being a good son, daughter. I heard one uh, Pastor Jim would say to me, you don't go home from work, you go home to work. You're going home to work. Another pastor say, um, go to bed tired. Work hard and go to bed tired. You're not staying up all night. You go to bed tired. We get lazy here, don't we? We get lazy. He says work hard. because We don't know what's, what is going to end up. You'll see that if you go back through Ecclesiastes. We don't know how our things are going to end up and where our stuff's going to go. Our stuff might go to some evil person in the future, and it just seems all meaningless. He's saying you don't know how everything's going to work out. Just work hard. Toil. Work hard. So here in Ecclesiastes, here Ecclesiastes says, Work hard for things that are under the sun because you don't know what will or will not prosper. So if we're to be working hard for things that are under the sun, how much more should we be working hard in our pursuit of things over the sun and heavenly, for heavenly things, setting our minds on things that are above? Working hard for earthly things versus working hard for spiritual things. So how have we been doing with this spiritually? Do we think of our Christian life as a work, a hard, we're working hard? Getting up in the morning after daylight savings time ends. 
can be hard work. It's, it doesn't even sound that hard, but at 6 o'clock it sounds hard. <laughs> can we get up in the morning just to read and pray? Would we rather sit and watch TV than spend time with God? Or rather play video games or get on social media and waste time? Or are we pursuing our relationship with Jesus? We get lazy here too, don't we? So since you don't know much, since we don't know much, we don't know what evil will come up on the earth. We don't know how God will work, how God is working. We don't know what will prosper. Since we don't really know anything, point number two, rejoice. Really? Rejoice? Look at verse seven. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring bring you into judgment. Rejoice. You know, I wouldn't have expected him to say that. Usually if I don't know something, then I would be sad. But here Ecclesiastes says, rejoice. And I hope you see that as an encouragement. Apparently it's a gift from God that we don't know the future, that we don't know everything. It's a grace from God that we can re- so that we can rely on him more and more. So if you're old, rejoice and enjoy your life. If you're young, he says here, rejoice and enjoy your life. Verse 8, if you're old, remember that the days of darkness will be many and all is meaningless. It's a reference back to not finding meaning in things that are under the sun. Remember, I read a text uh, from chapter 2 that gave us an example of that. Remember, the things that are under the sun, there's no meaning there. So reference back to that. Days of darkness will be many, and it's all meaningless. So just rejoice now. Verse 9, if you're young, remember that God will judge your actions. He says there at the end of verse 9, God will bring you into judgment. It's a reminder that we are to follow what God has for us, not for things under the sun. He's going to judge our actions, so do what's right. Or as chapter 12, verse 13 says, fear God and keep his commandments. So go after what your heart desires, he says in verse 9. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. Go after what your heart desires. Remember, you won't really find pleasure in anything under the sun. He's been down that road. And it leads nowhere. It's like grasping after the wind. So he's saying, so it's like he's saying, be a hedonist here. Follow your heart, Disney. I don't know. He's saying, be a hedonist, it sounds like. To that I say, yes, be a Christian hedonist. Be a Christian hedonist, as Piper popularized. Be a young or old pleasure seeker. Really? Well, we're not saying, he's, Piper uh, says, we're not saying that happiness is our highest good, but that pursuing the highest good will result in our greatest happiness in the end. Don't we believe that? True joy, real happiness, real joy and satisfaction is found in Christ. Christian hedonism, if you will. So we have that in mind. If we have in mind that God will bring us into judgment, whether good or bad, then we will follow what he has for us. And this is what our heart really desires. If we're followers of God, that's what we really desire, is what God wants. And with that comes joy, fullness of joy. Psalm 1611, in your 
presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So remember the concluding statements we saw in chapter 2 and 3? Eat, drink, find enjoyment. Walk in the ways of your heart. If your heart is submitted to God, then you will want what God wants. So follow him as long as you are submitted to him. Therefore, chapter 11, verse 10, stop worrying. Stop worrying. Look at verse 10. Remove worry or vexation from your heart and put away pain, is what the ESV says, or evil, put away evil from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Just a reminder. It keeps reminding, reminding us of this meaninglessness that we have. But stop worrying. Since you're rejoicing, there is no need to worry. Stop doing evil. Remove, put away evil from your body. Put it away. Why? There's no pleasure there. There's no pleasure. These things never satisfy. We've, we've seen this throughout. These things never satisfy. It's like trying to get ice cream out of a pop machine. It just doesn't work and it makes a big mess. So, don't worry. God is in control. Don't seek evil things because they won't satisfy. Seek pleasures that are found in God. And know God will judge. He will judge whether they are good or bad. So, what's the conclusion here? The conclusion here, uh, I don't have time to get into chapter 12, but chapter 12, he has a, a command there as well, to remember also your creator in the days of your youth. For the evil, evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So remember your creator. And then the big buildup to the very end of this book, as the frame narrator um, comes to a concluding matter. Notice the building up in verse 13 of chapter 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Love how all-encompassing that sounds. This is the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So fear God. Fear God. And keep his commandments. If we're playing around with sin, then yes, we should be afraid. Fear God. We should be praying for his mercy, his grace that we don't deserve. Fear God and keep his commandments. Don't fear displeasing man. Fear distrusting God. Matthew 10, what does he say? And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to kill both body and soul in hell. Do you wake up in the morning fearing the Lord? Because you know he will judge every deed, every secret deed, whether it's good or evil. So fear God and keep his commandments. Obey God. Know God so you can obey him. Know God. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is man's all. This is the whole duty of man. And God will judge every secret thing, everything. Our Bible teacher would say, who you are when you're alone 
is alone who you really are. When you're left to yourself with all the time in the world and all the freedom in the world, what do you choose to do? That might be a good indication of where your heart is. Do you live like God is in control and he is going to judge? So it's real simple. It's like the song that I learned a long time ago. Trust and obey. Fear God and keep his commandments. Do what's right. Enjoy doing what's right. And stop worrying about the future because we're not fortune tellers. God is in control. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we serve God who is in control. Thank you that we have the grace of not knowing everything, of not knowing the future, so that we might rely on you. So help us, Lord, to trust you, to believe in you as a sovereign and good God. And we trust you. And since we don't know everything, and since we have this gift from you, May we rejoice. May we find joy and satisfaction in fearing you and keeping your commandments. We love you so much. And we want to do what you, whatever you would have us do. Sometimes we don't understand it all. But our confession is that we would trust and obey. Lord, help us to do this. Help us to do this tonight when we go home. Help us to do this this week as we go to work. That we would live for you and for you alone. So keep worry from our hearts because we know you're in control. And help us to rejoice because we love and trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.